Welcome to the Itchy Podcast. This is the first episode in a new podcast from the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America. My name is Lindsay, and I'm the Managing Editor for Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, or Itchy. Each month, either myself or a SHEA member will be talking to authors who have published in the most recent issue of Itchy, the official journal of SHEA. Our hope is that this podcast allows SHEA members to stay up to date on the latest research in Itchy and gives researchers a chance to highlight their work. Today's episode is part one in a two-part series highlighting research from our April 2019 issue. That's volume 39, issue four. Authors of six articles from the April issue have agreed to talk about their research. Today's episode will highlight three of those articles, and the next episode will feature three additional articles from the April issue. Up first, I'm speaking with Heather Hughes, first author of an article entitled A Retrospective Cohort Study of Antibiotic Exposure and VRE Recolonization. Hi, Dr. Hughes. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about yourself and then tell us about the research that you conducted and what you found? Yes. So so I am an infectious diseases physician, and I'm also um, a hospital epidemiologist, so I'm, I'm very interested in preventing and understanding healthcare-associated infections. And so vancomycin, enterococcus cecium, or or VRE, these are bacteria that can live in the human intestines and the genital tract, and and they're often found in the environment as well. And while while VRE can live in us in humans without causing disease, VRE can also cause infections and and therefore is an important cause of hospital-acquired infections. And And so aside from treatment, another way to sort of attack VRE hospital-acquired infections is to focus on controlling the spread of VRE within hospitals. And to do this effectively, we need to gain a better understanding of of how VRE is transmitted within hospitals. And so that was really the impetus for this current manuscript and and study. Mm -hmm. And so so basically, the the likelihood of, of developing a VRE bloodstream infection after being colonized with VRE is highest among immunosuppressed patients. And in fact, the odds of death are more than double with the presence of a VRE bloodstream infection. So you can see how immunosuppressed patients can represent a very vulnerable patient population in terms of VRE infection. Mm-hmm. And so from, from an infection control, control standpoint, um, we, we really do two things to prevent VRE transmission within a hospital. So the first is active microbial surveillance. And so what I mean by this is using perirectal swabs to screen high-risk patients, and these swabs are first tested by PCR, and if they're positive, then they're inoculated for culture. And then the second uh, tool that we use is contact precaution. So when um, a patient is either colonized or infected with VRE, they're put in contact precautions to prevent the, the spread of, of VRE. And so, and so the goal of our study was to, to gain a better understanding of the natural history of VRE colonization and infection and then to investigate whether receiving inpatient antibiotics was associated with VRE recolonization. And, and so, re, so just a, a note about that. So when patients with VRE colonization or infection are placed in contact isolation, we keep them in contact isolation until they appear to be decolonized, meaning that we've taken three consecutive 
negative perirectal surveillance swabs at least one week apart. And then we can take them out of, of contact isolation and, and, and then they can go on. Um, but the challenge with this is that VRE colonization in patients is dynamic. And so what I mean by this is that over time, some patients who we think are VRE decolonized can actually grow VRE from perirectal swabs or clinical cultures again in the future. And so when that happens, we say, well, these patients are recolonized with VRE. And so the natural history of VRE recolonization is, is very poorly understood. And it's also not well known if the same risk factors, such as antibiotic use, that promote initial VRE colonization also encourage recolonization. It's a very important knowledge gap because ultimately it can affect clinical care and, and isolation status. And so that's really what, that was one of the, the goals of our study was to figure out what a particular risk factor um, of receiving antibiotics, whether that was associated with VRE recolonization. And so what our study, our study found was that, so most of our patients had underlying hematologic malignancies or had undergone stem cell transplant, and this is very consistent with the NIH patient population where, where we did the study. We found that only 15% of patients appeared to become and stay decolonized, which illustrates how tenacious VRE colonization is. In patients with perirectal swabs that were both PCR and culture positive had higher rates of VRE infection, suggesting that VRE colonization is a risk factor for infection. And so this link between colonization and infection is important for infection prevention practices. So in our study, about 23% of patients initially met the criteria for decolonization and therefore could have been taken out of contact precautions. But later on, almost 30% of, of those patients became recolonized. So they grew VRE again in either a perirectal uh, screening culture or in a clinical culture. And, and many of the patients in our study had periods of time where they'd have sometimes their VRE swabs would be positive, and then maybe they'd have one or two negative, and then afterwards they'd be positive again. So detectable colonization in our study appeared to be transient, um, perhaps because VRE persists in the intestinal flora below the threshold of testing. And, but you know, either way, that, that, that transient detectable colonization creates an infection control challenge for us because it makes it very difficult for us to determine when patients can truly come out of, of contact isolation. And so Finally, our data show that in terms of, of um, antibiotic use and recolonization, we found that once you become decolonized, your risk of recolonization is significantly associated re with receiving antibiotics when you're in the hospital. So antibiotics seem to impact the risk of recolonization. And this really you know, illustrates the importance of antimicrobial stewardship, particularly in the vulnerable immunosuppressed pa patient population, who, as I mentioned before, those are the ones that are most at risk um, for dying from a bloodstream infection with VRE. And, you know, another thing that, that our study suggests is that decolonized patients, if they then receive antibiotics again in the future, perhaps they should be screened for v VRE recolonization. And the purpose of that would be to, if you found that, that their, their VRE swab was positive, you could place those patients in contact isolation quickly and hopefully interrupt the chain of VRE transmission within your hospital. Great. Thanks so much um, for just that summary of your research and also for placing it kind of into the larger context of why it's important. I'm curious about what future research questions your study raised and also what you see as your next steps in your research. So, you know, our study, I think, raises several questions that are important for, for future research questions. So, 
So first of all, um, when we when I spoke about the recolonized patients, we still don't know if the VRE that we detected in these recolonize, recolonized patients, if that represented acquisition of a new VRE strain, or if it was just simply regrowth of the same strain that they had had all along, and and you know you you give them some antibiotics and, and then they regrow it again. Um, and so I think you know whole genome sequencing could could shed some light on that, and I know that that, that is definitely um, of interest to, to some of the, the co-authors of, of this manuscript. And so another question that, that the study raises, you know, or a point that it raises that, you know, VRE transmission is probably a lot more complex than we think. Um, and there's some recent studies that have been published um, that, that show that it could involve multiple introductions of genetically diverse organisms. So in other words, multiply genetically diverse uh, VRE gets introduced into the hospital, um, and there's, they're all different, and then they clonally expand, and so you just sort of have like a bunch of different um, VRE within your hospital. And so it can be very difficult to figure out how exactly it's transmitted, you know, where did it come from, where's it going. And, you know, finally, several VRE colonization risk factors other than antibiotic receipt, we didn't assess that in our study, and so I certainly think that that, that should be done in the future to figure out, you know, are, are other things such as proximity, to another VRE patient, prolonged hospital stay, other immunosuppressant medications, you know, all of those could potentially make you at risk for recolonization. I think that, uh, that those should be studied as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for taking some time today to share more about your research with our listeners. Okay, thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Now joining me by phone are Jefferson Bowen and Matthew Getz, two of the authors on the article, Evaluation of Uncomplicated Acute Respiratory Tract Infections Management in Veterans, a National Utilization Review. Welcome Jefferson and Matt. Can you start by introducing yourselves and then telling me about the research you conducted and what you found? Sure. Uh, Jefferson, as first author, you should probably start by introducing yourself. All right, perfect. Um, yes, my name is Jefferson Bowen, and I am a uh, antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist. Uh, at the time that this work was uh, completed, I was uh, currently, or I was at the time, completing my fellowship at the Boise VA uh, Medical Center, um, and and this work was done as a quality improvement project as part of the antimicrobial stewardship. Uh, task force um, uh, across the national VA uh, scope. And so, uh, uh, Dr. Getz, do you, do you want to take it from there? Yeah, sure. I'm uh, Matt Getz. I'm the chief of the infectious diseases program at the VA hospital in Los Angeles. I'm also a member of the uh, VA um, antimicrobial stewardship task force. And I'm pleased to have this opportunity to speak about this study, which was done as a joint project by the VA's Antimicrobial Stewardship Task Force and the VA uh, Pharmacy Benefits Management Group, uh, particularly the Center for Medication Safety, which has a number of co-authors. Pleased to be here. Great, thank you. Um, so tell us a little bit about uh, what exactly you did and what you found. So this was a quality improvement project done by the VA groups that I've mentioned uh, previously. Uh, the VA uh, conducts a nationwide medication utilization utilization evaluations on an, in a number of different areas on a yearly basis to uh, assess uh, whether medications are being used appropriately, safely, and whether the desired outcomes are being achieved. For the past several years, the, the VA on a yearly basis has 
uh, conducted uh, at least one medication utilization evaluation uh, directed at antibiotic use. Uh, similar studies or quality improvement studies have been done looking at the duration of therapy for persons hospitalized with ammonia treatment of skin soft tissue infections. And this project, which was looking at the management uh, with antibiotics and other measures for persons with uncomplicated acute respiratory tract infections. The study was conducted at approximately 30 VA facilities across the country uh, with a scope of looking at uh, persons with either acute bronchitis, acute pharyngitis, um, acute rhinosinusitis, or uh, upper respiratory infection not otherwise specified, excluding people uh, with uh, complicated illnesses or comorbidities such as immunocompromised persons or people with uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Uh, clearly, this has been an error. The issue of uh, inappropriate antibiotic use is one of its important to inpatients and outpatients. Uh, it's estimated that 30% of outpatient antibiotic use is for acute respiratory infections in uncomplicated patients. And there, there have been numerous uh, studies, of course, showing that there's a much of that antibiotic use is um, not appropriate. So the goal of this study is a uh, quality improvement project is to look for opportunities for improvement in practice. Uh, looking at uh, one of the things that we really addressed was the classification of patients, uh, whether the documented signs and symptoms in patients, uh, were correlated with the diagnosis that were being provided or, or, and or whether the workup for the patients were appropriate in terms of uh, cultures and other tests, for example, with people with acute pharyngitis or and also looked at the uh, whether persons were uh, appropriately selected for antibiotic therapy, particularly for rhinosinusitis, looking at the constellation of symptoms that patients had. And if people did meet the uh, uh, criteria for receiving antibiotics based upon documentation in the charts, whether they received appropriate antibiotic therapy. And then we also looked at outcomes such as return to uh, clinic visits or receipt of antibiotics otherwise. Uh, and I would say that overall, the scope of our findings was that as has been shown outside the VA, there is uh, considerable uh, opportunities for improvement in antibiotic use. Uh, in that uh, many patients with acute bronchitis, uh, acute pharyngitis, respiratory infections, otherwise specified, got antibiotic use that was not uh, explicitly justified by documentation in the chart and received antibiotics uh, that were not, that were not uh, first or second line uh, agents for treatment of the entity. The nature of our findings, uh, uh, we'll talk about future work of the uh, specifically is informing interventions being undertaken in the VA to improve practice. Uh, great. Thank you um, for that summary. You touched on this a little bit, but is there any more you'd like to say just about the importance of this article and how uh, it kind right, of right. contributes in regards to the to... Port, Okay. In regards to the importance of the article, the importance of the article, uh, I think, is principally in the, shall we say, the detail of results that we have regarding how physicians and other practitioners document the presence and absence of signs of symptoms and how they use that information to make decisions to give or not give antibiotic therapy. And thus, these data have been very important to the VA's 
quality improvement initiatives, and I think can be very important to external quality improvement projects to uh, help physicians and other providers more clearly understand what the diagnostic criteria are for those persons with sinusitis who have a high likelihood of bacterial infection and thus should give antibiotics, and also most importantly for those who do not meet justifiable criteria for getting antibiotics, uh, to think more critically about patient selection and specificity of diagnosis rather than thinking about things as a more mm, heterogeneous entity and giving antibiotics less, with less discriminatory thought being provided. Mm -hmm. And did your findings or the limitations of your study raise any future research questions that you'd like to see investigated? Well, um, I think that the research questions that I see being investigated uh, relate to more to how to implement the findings rather than to, uh, and specifically, how do we change provider behavior? And uh, within the VA, we, in collaboration with the VA's academic detailing program, uh, we are conducting interventions that educate providers uh, as to uh, what the specific signs and symptoms are that justify antibiotics or that do not justify antibiotics. And we have coupled that uh, using other uh, research that's been done inside and outside the VA uh, to provide uh, practitioners with data regarding their own prescribing practices in comparison with the prescribing practices of others. In other words, we've looked at the variation of prescribing across providers and given providers a perspective as to how their rate of prescribing uh, compares with, um, shall we say, best practice providers. And our preliminary data, and uh, Jefferson might want to comment on work that he uh, presented at the ID Week last year, shows that these measures are making an impact. Yeah, really, um, and, I'll, and I'll piggyback on off, off, off of what Dr. Getz just mentioned, but um, really one of the big benefits of, of this work that was done is not only the detailed analysis, but also the scope and, and broadness of inclusion of 28 facilities across the country, inclusion of over 4,300 patients, where we were able to, um, with, with, with the help of a lot of our colleagues across the country, dive into manual chart review to collect that information that um, is otherwise very difficult and traditionally has been very difficult to collect from more of an electronic database perspective. And so uh, additionally, some of the work I, I know that's occurring within the VA as well as some other private uh, healthcare uh, systems that are out there is really identifying analytics techniques to abstract from the chart specific wording um, that, that might provide uh, that might provide some information and some uh, a, a, a little more granularity into what is actually happening that that's being documented in the chart, and so definitely. Uh, uh, and and Dr. Getz mentioned a lot that was that's currently happening in the VA. Uh, in my in my current position, I'm actually the system antimicrobial stewardship clinical pharmacist for Oshner Health System, which is a private uh, healthcare system in the in the Gulf South uh, states of the United States here, and. We're, we're actually taking a very similar approach in benchmarking our physician antibiotic prescribing rates for acute upper respiratory tract infections, uh, both in primary care as well as urgent care 
settings. And so um, I, I think this information really can, can not only inform uh, kind of the internal VA practice, but it, it can also really help uh, identify where the focus should be for implementation of specific educational practices as well as interventions in the outpatient setting uh, across the country in the private VA sector or in the, in the private healthcare sector as well. Great. Well, thank you again, Dr. Bowen and Dr. Getz, um, for taking some time today to talk to me about your research. And we can look forward to reading the full article in the April issue of Itchy. Thank you. You're quite thank welcome. Thank you so much. Up next, I'm speaking with Katherine Goodman. Dr. Goodman is the first author of an article entitled A Methodological Comparison of Risk Scores Versus Decision Trees for Predicting Drug-Resistant Infections, a case study using extended-spectrum beta-lactamase bacteremia. Welcome, Katherine, and thank you for joining me today. Uh, to start, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and then give us an overview of your paper? Yes, of course. Um, thank you, Lindsay, for the opportunity to talk about our paper. My name is Katie Goodman, and I just recently completed my PhD in epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. And this paper actually evolved out of my dissertation research, which focused on prediction models for drug-resistant infections. Um, specifically, as many listeners are no doubt aware, one of the ongoing challenges surrounding multidrug-resistant organisms in particular, the gram-negatives are diagnostics, and that's either because the tests don't exist at all or because even where they do, they have other limitations, including potentially lengthy turnaround times. The extended-spectrum beta-lactamase producers are in many ways emblematic of this challenge, with the functional result that it can take days from the time of culture to confirm ESBL status. And this can leave healthcare epidemiologists unsure, for instance, whether patients need contact precautions and treating clinicians unsure whether carbapenems are necessary, which of course should be used as judiciously as possible. And so with this in mind, an important area of my and my colleagues' research is how statistical prediction models can help to fill these informational voids. A few years ago, we derived and published a decision tree to predict whether bacteremias are ESBL producers. And this was using a machine learning approach called classification and regression tree or CART analysis. And since then, we realized that there could be utility in revisiting this question, um, both because there had been interest in how a more traditional method, such as a risk score, would perform in this same data set but also more generally in this machine learning methodology. And so the overarching goals of this paper were really twofold. One being, can we derive a well-performing risk score to predict ESBL status? But then two, can we also use this as a case study to methodologically compare these two prediction model approaches in what we hope is a very concrete and accessible format? Great. Um, thank you so much for that helpful overview. Uh, can you speak a little bit about what your study found? A absolutely. So in our cohort of nearly 1,300 inpatients with E. coli or Klebsiella species bacteremia, we were able to develop a highly discriminatory risk score to predict ESBL status. 
The primary limitation of our score, however, was that it ultimately included 14 variables, which is quite clearly most likely too complex for bedside applications. In contrast, the original decision tree derived from this same data only included five variables and combined with its branching logic was much sim simpler for manual bedside use. Um, we note that the decision tree sensitivity and specificity were also nearly identical to the risk scores at the optimal score cut point. Importantly, though, the decision tree's sensitivity and specificity are not adjustable by the end user, which can be a critical limitation. So, for example, you can imagine a situation in which a clinician or infection control practitioner might want to increase sensitivity. Um, in other words, the probability of accurately identifying as positive those patients who are truly ESBL positive. And this may be even if it also increases the false positive rate. Strictly speaking, this wouldn't be possible once a decision tree prediction tool has been created. And so what we hope this case study helped to accomplish is to illustrate how, um, using this real-world example, we see the strengths and challenges of these different approaches actually playing out. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. And as we conclude, I was hoping you could speak briefly about the importance of your work and also if there are any research um, plans you have in the future that will build on this article. Thank you, Lindsay. Um, so I've somewhat touched on this already, but I think that the primary importance of this work lies uh, perhaps somewhat paradoxically in its attempt at simplicity. And by that, I mean that we are increasingly seeing machine learning's potential utility in epidemiology and other clinical applications, uh, but its wider uptake is often hampered, I think, by things as simple as language and technical barriers even between the two fields. And so our goal was to write the type of article that, frankly, I wish there had been more of when I was learning these techniques. And namely, that is a very practical, methodological walkthrough uh, with a real-world example to help make these concepts less abstract for researchers without computer science backgrounds. So having now derived two different prediction models in this cohort, um, we don't have any further plans to examine this question further, at least vis-a-vis -vis ESBL bacteremia. But certainly, um, prediction models and machine learning in general remain an important focus of my research, um, especially as we see further rollout of electronic medical records and the larger data sources that they offer. So in particular, although we only examine two very simple prediction tools in this article, I do think that it would be great in the future to address other techniques. For instance, some ensemble machine learning methods such as random forest can often yield even more accurate decision support tools that are amenable to EMR automation and that may be useful to hospital epidemiologists. Great, wonderful. Well, thank you, Dr. Goodman, for taking the time to speak with me today. And as I mentioned, listeners will be able to read the full article in the April issue of Itchy. Um, thanks again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Itchy Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our first episode. Please be sure to listen to episode two of the podcast where I'll be speaking with Darren Pasai, Brett Mitchell, Janine Kukurin, Philip Russo, and Scott Ann Jawirden about their articles from the April issue.
Thank you again to Heather Hughes, Jefferson Bowen, Matthew Getz, and Katherine Goodman for joining me today. And special thanks to Jack Simchak for our theme music. Please be sure to check out the full April issue of Itchy Online. And don't forget, Itchy subscribers can share read-only PDFs of all Itchy articles via Cambridge Core Share. Just click the share link next to the article to share it via email or on social media. And if you have any comments or feedback about today's episode, please feel free to email me at itchy.managingeditor at shayonline.org. Thank you.